you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 11. We'll be in the passage we heard read before, uh, John eleven seventeen through 44. Our passage this morning is one that I've probably spoken from or shared from the most, but at the places I least wanted to be. Sharing it in funeral homes, sharing it at graveside services. It's the passage where I've probably cried the most in preparation for today, and we'll see what happens in the message. And the reason that this passage comes with this emotion is because it deals with one of the hardest issues in life. It puts its finger directly on what is often the greatest source of our suffering. And when we come to things like this, the the, the issue that we wrestle with, that we are grappling with, that all, all of humanity at some point wrestles with this issue of how can the claims about God's character, that he is sovereign, that he is loving, how can those claims be true in the face of my personal suffering? How can I reconcile these two truths that seem to be pulling me in opposite directions? God is good. He is sovereign. He is loving. But I am in such pain. This is an issue that affects all of us. Do we trust that he loves us and is powerful when little girls die from heart defects? When little boys are born with autoimmune diseases. When loved ones struggle with cancer. When deer run in front of motorcycles. Is God still good? Does God still love me? Is he still sovereign in those moments? What do we do with that pain and suffering? Is God there? I don't often title my messages. Um, We actually talked about this a little bit in community group of what we would title different messages, but I I titled this one. And it's using a metaphor that I took from C.S. Lewis, but it's, uh, the title is Suffering in the Shadowlands. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, the last one is the, um, the last one is The Last Battle. C.S. Lewis, in the last book, after the Pevensey children, so Luke, uh, no, not Luke, um, Peter, Edmund, and Lucy, um, he sees them, and he tells them that you are what is called in the Shadowlands dead. And this idea of Shadowlands, this metaphor, works for us because even it's a biblical metaphor. In Psalm 23, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jesus, the good shepherd. And in Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The imagery that we've seen in the Gospel of John over and over again is that Jesus is the light that has come to the kingdom of darkness. 
And what we're going to see with a shadow is that shadows point to a greater reality. They are not the substance, but they are pointing to something. And our suffering in the shadowlands point to something greater. They point both to something more evil than we could imagine, but there is a shadow because there is a light that is brighter than we could imagine. So what does our suffering in the shadow lands mean? Because there is nothing that has caused people to doubt more God's sovereignty than when they come face to face with human suffering. So here's my argument for this morning. This is what I want to propose to you. Not only does suffering in the shadow lands not disprove God's love and sovereignty, it is precisely through our suffering that God proves his love and sovereignty. That it is through our suffering that Christ points to a greater reality. That he is doing something through all the pain. Our big idea is this, that believe in Christ's sovereign plan of salvation, for it is our comfort in suffering. Believe in Christ's sovereign plan of salvation, for it is our comfort in suffering. If you have your Bible, I want you to, you're already open to John 11. I want to look at the first part that Billy did last week. Verses 1 through 16 are the setup for our passage. And in that passage, there are three different purpose statements that Christ explains why things are happening. The first one that you can look is right there in verse um, In verse 4, it says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, and here's the purpose statement, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, so whatever is about to happen, the purpose is so that the Son of God would be glorified. Now look at the next part. Now Jesus loved Martha and and her sister and Lazarus, so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The so there is again giving another purpose. Because he loved them, he delayed. Part of his purpose was his love for them. But then if we move forward to verse 15, where right before it says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Jesus shows us that something more is happening here. That he has a sovereign plan and he knows exactly, this is for my glory. This is because I love them. This is so that you may believe. And we were talking about this even in our community group when it says, for your sake, so that you may believe, it is for their good. Now, when we're facing suffering, how nice would it be for you to have a little playbook where Jesus kind of wrote to you and said, hey, these are the three reasons why I'm going to let you go through what you're about to go through. That would be nice, right? It would be nice for me to be able to make all the connections. Now, here's the question. In some ways, it seems like Jesus has done that. Who are the people who have not heard the so that's? Who are the people that weren't present for the purpose statements? Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are far away. They didn't get the opportunity to hear 
all of the purpose statements of why God was allowing this hardship to happen. And yet what we're going to see is precisely the three things that he said would happen will happen. So with that, let's look at John 11, verses 17 through 19. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. What we're having right there is just the setup. It's been four days. To make things worse, not only is Lazarus already dead, Bethany is right next to Jerusalem, and these are the people that have tried time and time again to kill him. But Jesus now comes. Delayed, in our minds. We needed you four days ago. Look at verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained in the house. One of the things we are going to see in this passage is the difference in Martha and Mary's grief. They don't deal with grief the same way. What's even more interesting then is seeing the way that Jesus deals with them differently. Martha's the go-getter. When we think of the different stories of Martha, Martha's the one that invites Jesus to come to her house for a meal. Martha is later in the next chapter, she's going to serve Jesus a meal. Right here, Martha hears that Jesus is coming. The one that she wrote to in the previous verses and said, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. She hears that Jesus is coming. And so she goes to him. But look at Martha's grief. How is Martha dealing with her grief? Don't forget to remember the deep sorrow and anguish and emotion that is present in these verses. Martha is grasping for hope. She wants something. She's in that moment of deep sorrow and she's looking for something to hold on to. And she hears that Jesus is coming. So she goes to Jesus and this is what she says in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a statement of faith. It's her first of four statements. But here's the question. Is her statement true? What she says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What, what's happening here? Martha, in her grief, has made an assumption about God's plan. What does she know about how Jesus feels about her brother? Jesus loves Lazarus. That's what she, they said. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And then it's confirmed in verses 5 and 6. But Jesus loved Lazarus. She's right in that. She knows something that is true, but then she makes an assumption from that. Her assumption is, Jesus, if you love Lazarus, then there's no way that your plan would be for him to die. Don't we make those kinds of assumptions? God, this is what I know is true about you, so I, there's no way that this is really part of your plan. But now because she's made a wrong assumption about God's plan, she limits his power. Look what she says. The reason, why, why did Lazarus still die? Well, it's because you weren't here. Does Christ's location limit his activity? No. 
Think back to chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus is with the, the Samaritans, and the, officials, uh, the official comes to him and says that his son is ill, and he says, come with me. Come save my son. It's very similar to the request that Martha and Mary make. Lord, come. We need you. And yet in that moment, what does Jesus say to the official son? Go, your son will be well. He will live. And it happened. So God, Jesus was not limited by location. But Martha here, why does Martha say this? Because in her grief, she's trying to reconcile these truths. God, I know that you love him, but he still died. And so her only option then is to limit his power. Well, I know you would have done something different, but, but maybe you can't. Now, I'm not wanting to look at this and saying, oh, come on, Martha, you didn't, don't get it. No, we do this. When we are in our moments of grief, we ask questions of God. And what I love about the Bible is the Bible does not shy away from true expressions of grief. Read through the Psalms and the things that the psalmists say to God are they bare their soul. And that is what Martha's doing. But Martha's still grasping, and, and even though she, she, something is different, she's still grasping. She still has hope, and so she says in verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's grasping for hope. Her world around her has crumbled, and she's grasping for truth that she can hold to. Now Martha's not asking here for Jesus to raise Lazarus. Okay, we, we're, we're going to go further in the passage, and Jesus is going to say different things, and even when it comes the moment to resurrect Lazarus, and he says, move the stone, and she's like, don't! It's going to smell! So she's not asking for, 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 for Lazarus to be raised. What is she doing? She's grasping on something that she can still have confidence. Look, Lord, even now, even when it is darkest, even when I cannot see, I'm still going to hold on to that whatever you ask for him, God, God will give you. I still have confidence in you, God, even though you weren't able to save my brother. Martha is grasping for hope, and so Jesus responds by giving her hope. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Every once in a while, Jesus is the master of ambiguity. Where we're like, wait, what is he meaning? Because we, for us that have read to the end of the story, we're like, oh, we know what he's saying. But this is an example where, of a passage where there's two sides to this. On one side, there's the resurrection at the end times. In John 5, Jesus says that an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, the voice of Jesus, and will come out. In John 6, verse 39, it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is talking about the resurrection on the last day, but he's also hinting at what he's about to do. But here's a truth I want you to see from Martha's journey. Martha is going to be comforted before she sees both sides of Jesus' statement. Martha is going to be comforted before Lazarus is raised from the dead because she is going to see, she is going to grasp the hope that Jesus is giving her. And truthfully, that's a blessing for us because we can follow that pattern. I cannot guarantee that a Lazarus will be risen in your life, but what I can guarantee is the promises that Christ is making here that we can hold on to a perfect hope. 
Look at Martha's next statement. How does she understand what he says? Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I think Martha took what Jesus said to her like many of us take true statements in times of grief. When people come up to us in, in the times of our sorrow and say, it's going to be okay. We'll see him again. They're in a better place. God has a plan for this. All of those are true and beautiful and profound statements, but often in our grief, it's so hard to grasp the reality of that truth. It slips through our fingers. We're hard, trying. And I think Martha's trying. She wants the hope Jesus is talking about. She repeats the truth, but it hasn't reached her heart yet. It hasn't comforted her yet. The reason I say that is because of what Jesus says next to her. I want us to see how Jesus interacts with one who is burdened with sorrow. Martha has shown the inner grief. She's grasping for that hope. And so look how Jesus responds. Martha comes asking for hope. And what does Jesus show? Christ reveals his identity. He reveals himself for he is the true hope. Look what he said. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's like Martha saying, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. But, but, but God, Jesus, I know that God is still going to do whatever you ask. I still trust you. Martha, your brother is going to be okay. He will rise again. I know, Jesus. I know he's going to be okay. I know he'll rise again in the end, but, but this really hurts. Martha, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. I'm the comforter of those who are grasping for hope. I'm the one who gives hope in death. Whoever believes in me, death doesn't destroy that hope. Whoever lives in me never tastes death. Martha, more than some religious, obscure hope. Martha, do you believe in me? Am I your hope? Martha comes to Jesus asking for hope, and Jesus gives her true hope by revealing his true identity. Jesus is the one who we run to when we are grasping for hope, and Jesus gives us greater hope than we could ever hope to receive. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This is Jesus' fifth I am statement where he tells us who he is. What is Jesus showing Martha? He's showing her that the, her comfort and hope is found in him. The truth that Jesus is the resurrection and life is one of the profoundest truths we have. The universal human condition is spiritual deadness. Understand this. Physical death is horrible. It is a direct result of humanity's fall. But physical death is not our main problem. Physical death is merely a shadow that points to the substance of our problem. Physical death is the shadow that serves as the constant reminder of the true substance of our problem. And the reality of our problem is spiritual death. We are separated from God. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. And we are cursed and condemned. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the one who can reverse the curse of sin. When Jesus claims to be the resurrection of, and the life, the fulfillment of this truth is not in raising Lazarus. Jesus is pointing to something so much greater than bodily resurrection from physical death. Look what he says. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In this statement, Jesus addresses both the shadow and the substance. He's speaking on two levels. Whoever believes in me, though he die. What death is he talking about there? Physical death. The shadow death. Death that points to a substance. Though he die, physically, yet shall he live. What life is he talking about? Substance life. Real life. Life in Christ. It's the abundant life that, the, that Jesus, the good shepherd, gives in chapter 10. It's the life, the abundant life that only comes through Christ. And everyone who lives and believes in me, well now, what life is he talking about? Everyone who lives. Physical life. The life here in the Shadowlands. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Which death? Is he saying that you'll never physically die? Spiritual death. Do you see that Jesus does this crossing of paths of both elements? Even though he die physically, yet shall he have life in me spiritually. And if he lives spiritually for me here, he will never die spiritually. He does both of these sides. He's showing that there is a greater reality. Martha comes to Jesus seeking hope because life in the shadowlands seems hopeless. But Jesus points her to a greater and realer and more precious reality. But in order for her to receive that reality, he asks her the most important question. Do you believe this? All of the hope that Martha is seeking and wanting to grasp, the only way to have that hope is if we believe in the resurrection and life who is Christ. And look at the glorious response that Martha gives. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Martha's final statement is a beautiful demonstration of one who is in the midst of grief and yet has found hope. Look at the things she says. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one who is coming into the world. When Martha believed in Jesus as her hope, Martha was comforted. And again, don't miss the fact, Lazarus hasn't been risen. She has hope before, and she has no idea that's coming. But she has hope. She has the hope that we all can have. Now let me ask you this. What was the result of Lazarus' death in Martha's life? Martha glorified God. Martha put the Son of God in the right position in her life. Last week, Billy talked about that. To glorify the Son of God is to put the Son of God in the right place in your life. Now think back. What was the first purpose statement that, God, that Jesus said would happen because of what was going on with Lazarus? He said, so that the Son of God would be glorified. What has happened in this first paragraph? Martha has glorified the Son. Martha has put Jesus in the right position in her life. She has glorified him. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one who is coming into the world. 
when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, grasping with all our strength, our hope in Christ, who is our salvation, the Son of God is glorified. When we go through these hard things, and at no point do we look at this passage and it says that it's easy. But when we go through those trials, holding on to the hope which is Jesus, then Jesus is glorified. He accomplishes the purpose that he said would happen in this suffering. The promises Jesus gives go beyond the removal of suffering within the shadowlands. The promises of God is to remove that which casts the shadow. He deals with the substance. We can be comforted even if, La- if our Lazarus is never raised because Jesus promise us, promises us resurrection for ourselves. He promises something far greater, spiritual life, true life, not shadow life, real life. Believe in Christ's sovereign plan of salvation, for it is our comfort in suffering. Let's look at the next paragraph. Verse 28. When he had said this, when she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. If Martha's grasping for hope, Mary's overwhelmed with emotion. They're dealing with their grief different ways. Look at some clues of where Mary's at that show this overwhelmed, emotional person. Back in verse 20, Martha went to Jesus, but John makes a point to say that Mary remained seated. I think it's more than she can handle. When Martha tells her that Jesus is calling her, it says she rose quickly and went to him. But look at the reaction of those around her. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. They see Mary get up and start running, and they go with her. Now, here's the question. Is Mary the first person to leave the house? No. Who left the house before? Martha. And earlier, it said that the Jews were there to console both of them. And yet, when Martha left, no one went with her. Is that because they didn't love Martha? No, but they see that they're in different places. Look what it's saying. What day is this after Lazarus' death? Four days. This isn't the day of his death. This isn't the day of the memorial service. Lazarus is already buried. And yet four days later, they're still there watching Mary, making sure that she's okay, staying with her. And when they see, what do they assume about her? They assume she's running to the tomb to weep more. Whatever has happened in these four days, they see that Mary's in this dark, emotional place. But the greatest clue of Mary's emotional state is how it describes Mary coming to Jesus. Look what it says in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary comes to Jesus and collapses at his feet. Amidst the sobs and tears, all she can utter are the exact same words that her sister has already said before her. Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. She's in this place that she just doesn't understand. This place of darkness. Those are the only words that Mary says. In the whole chapter, that's it. Mary has no other words. Martha came with words. Mary came with weeping. So how does Christ respond to the one who comes weeping? To the one who came looking for answers and hope, Jesus revealed his true identity. But to the one who came emotional and weeping, Jesus reveals his heart. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Notice the lack of words, not only of Mary, but also of Jesus. The only words he says in this paragraph are, where have you laid him? But the first emotion we see from Christ is that it says that when seeing her tears, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In a little bit, we're going to dive into what that means, that he was deeply moved in his spirit. But first, I want you to notice what Jesus sees. What does Jesus observe first? Jesus sees Mary's tears. He saw her weeping. He saw the Jews weeping. Let's reflect on that truth. The lie we often believe in the midst of suffering is that God has abandoned us or that God does not care. That our tears go unnoticed by the God of the universe. That is a lie from Satan. The reality is that God sees our tears. As I was reflecting on this truck, uh, this verse, I was struck by the truth that our tears are numbered. And here's what I mean by that. Our tears are numbered in the sense that God sees each and every single one. No tear goes unnoticed. God numbered your tears. He knows the tears. But there's another sense. There's a greater truth that our tears are numbered. There's an end. They're numbered. Each tear you cry is one less than you ultimately, will ultimately cry. They are numbered. There is coming a day where he will wipe away every tear because he knows about them. He knows that they are there. Let's look at the, his reaction, though, to their tears. It says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. Um, this is not a common word. Some of you might have different translations, or maybe you even have a footnote in your Bible that says that he was um, angered, he was indignant. The imagery of the word is a, a, a horse that is blowing out its nostrils. That there's something that when you come up to a horse and it... <sighs> Okay, sorry, you're much bigger. I'll leave you alone. Well, what's going on here? Why is Jesus deeply moved and angered? Now, because that this is a, a difficult verse, there are different views, and I'm just going to go through, through my view. Many people see this as he's angered at the unbelief of the Jews. He weeps because the Jews did not believe um, they look at the, the final words of this paragraph and kind of point to that. And, and truthfully, within the Gospel of John, there is a theme of unbelief. But I don't think that that's what's happening here. 
Think about what did Jesus see that caused him to be deeply moved, to be angered, to be indignant and troubled? He saw their tears. Is he angry at their tears? Is he angry because he, they don't understand what they're doing? No. Why are they crying? What, what is the reason for the tears for these people? Death. Their friend Lazarus has died. Why did Lazarus die? What is the root cause of all death? Sin. Why did Jesus come into the world? To deal with it. So think about what Jesus is seeing here. Jesus is being confronted with people who are laden down with the enemy he has come to conquer. For all of us, all of us who have only ever lived within the shadowlands, do we not, in times of great suffering, do we not, in times of, of sorrow, when we are grieving the loss of someone, what is it that we say? This is not how it's supposed to be. But how do we know that? This is all we've ever known. All we've ever known is this age of death. All we've ever seen is people dying. And yet there is something in us that says this is not how it's supposed to be. We are indignant at death. We are angered at death. As people who have only known the shadowlands. But is that Jesus? Does Jesus only know the shadowlands? No. When Jesus says this is not what it's supposed to be, Jesus is the only one that really knew what it was supposed to be. This is how John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus knows what this world was supposed to be because Jesus was there when it was made. And so when Jesus sees and comes face to face with the enemy that he is here to conquer, he sees the reality of it. He doesn't just see the shadow, which is physical death. He sees beyond that. He sees to what the shadow points to. He sees the fallenness of humanity, and it angers him. And that's a comfort to us. Because what we could expect from a God who warned us at the very beginning, who told humanity, this is the result. If you, I have made this perfect world, but if you choose to serve a different God, if you choose to worship another person, then this is the result. What would be fair, what would be justified, is for Christ to look at our suffering and say, I'm vindicated. I told you this was going to happen. I warned you, didn't I? This is what's going to happen. But that's not how he sees it. He's angered at that. Why? Because he loves us. His anger, his indignation, his troubled spirit, what that is pointing to is the love that Christ has. What has John shown us is the purpose that Christ came into the world. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He came because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. His emotion here is at the true enemy. 
that he is looking past the shadow and he is seeing the true reality. Because we could look at this and say, wait, doesn't Jesus know what's going to happen? Doesn't he know that Lazarus is going to come to, to life? Yes. But he also knows why Lazarus is dead. But the last clue then for the emotion that we see that this is truly because he loved us is how does he then take these emotions, this deeply moved in his spirit? Does he take off his robe and make it into a whip and start whipping them because uh, they're doing things wrongly? No. Does he rebuke them? Does he chastise them? No. Verse 35, what does he do? He weeps. Mary, who came to him, weeping. He is indignant at the suffering of this world that is caused by sin, and he weeps. Often we look at these verses as a demonstration of Christ's humanity, and while that's true, it does point to his humanity, I think sometimes we misapply that. Because we look and say, oh, Christ wept, that demonstrates his humanity, and the way that we mean that is it demonstrates his weakness. Because humans are the ones who cry. We could never imagine God crying. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is not weeping out of weakness. Jesus wept as both God and man. He did not weep as one who did not understand what was happening. When we weep, we we have a glimpse. We have a view of the shadow. We don't fully understand everything that is happening because of our sorrow and suffering because of death. We don't understand the big picture. But Jesus is different. He wept as the only one who has ever known exactly what was happening. He saw the full reality, the shadow and the substance. He wept because he loved his friends. He wept for a world that was still in darkness. So Mary comes to Jesus overwhelmed by emotion, and what does Jesus reveal? He reveals his heart. Look at the result of what Christ does in this second paragraph. He's made his love evident. Think back. What was the second purpose statement? What did we say that this is why Jesus did this? Because he loved them. Back in verse 5 and 6, so, because he loved them, so he stayed away. This was because of his love. What has he made evident in this second paragraph? That he loves Mary. That he loves us. They weren't around to hear the purpose statements, and yet are the purpose statements coming true? Is he sovereign? Is he loving? But not everyone got that. As the Jews said, some of them did, see how he loved him. They understood his weeping, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? What's the question that they're struggling with? It's the same one that we've been talking about. Wait, he loves them? Okay. And he's powerful enough to save the blind man. Wait, but Lazarus died. So if he's powerful enough, and you guys are saying that he loved him, Why did Lazarus still die? That's the struggle that they're having. They're not seeing the reality that they're just looking at the shadow and they're thinking the shadow is the substance, but Jesus is doing something greater. God loves you in the midst of your suffering. He is with you. He has numbered your tears. He loves you enough to come fight the true enemy. He weeps with you. God is with, God was with little girls with heart defects. God was with Don on that motorcycle. It's not 
Lord, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. No, God was with them, and it still happened because it's part of his loving, sovereign plan. Let's look at the last paragraph. We now arrive at the last of Jesus' seven signs in this first half of the book. And in this sign, Jesus confronts humanity's greatest grief. He confronts the hopelessness of the darkness of death. Then Jesus, deeply moved, same word as before, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Martha serves as our voice here. She says what we're thinking. Jesus, there's nothing you can do here. He's been dead for four days He's really gone. This is the true hopeless part of humanity. This is where our grief is most made evident because, God, there's nothing that can be done anymore. It's done. He's gone. This is our, our grief. Jesus, if I were there, I'm looking at Jesus like he's crazy. Jesus, what are you doing? Haven't you done enough? You abandoned them in their time of need. What comfort does opening the tomb give? How is this situation made better by forcing us to smell the rot and decay of death? The only thing we will find in opening this cave is greater despair. There is no light inside the cave, only darkness. This is what we feel in sorrow. This is our grief. But it is precisely in the greatest darkness that God's glory shines the brightest. It is in the darkest moment that God's glory shines the brightest. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people who are standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Christ's response to Martha's suffering was to reveal his identity. His response to Mary was to reveal his heart. His response to all of humanity is to reveal his power to rescue and redeem suffering sinners. Look what he says. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The word for glory has the idea of light. Jesus said, if you, will, if you believe, you will see the glory. You will see the light, even in this darkest moment. What's the result of our belief? We see something greater than the shadow before us. We see something outside of the shadowlands. He alone can rescue and redeem suffering sinners, and this is what he wants for us. Look what he prays. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me, because this is the only way that you receive this power to rescue and redeem, is if we believe. Again, think back to his last purpose statement. Why was he glad that he wasn't present when Lazarus died? He said, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. He is using this suffering for their good so that they may believe. And there's two elements of this belief. There is the one side of believing in the sense of salvation, but there's the other side of, of growing deeper in your belief, of strengthening your belief. Martha has already told Jesus that she believes. She has already believed in Christ, and yet he is saying this so that you may believe because he wants her belief strengthened. How many of you have come through a season of suffering where your faith is stronger? 
But it isn't always that way. See, the reality is there's two sides of my shadow. There is the side that you walk along the shadow, you're coming closer to the light. But there's the other side of my shadow where I am walking towards darkness. Believe. Believe so that you can see the glory. Follow that shadow back to see where the source of light is so that you can see Christ. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. All of the signs that we see in John point to a greater reality. The signs aren't promises where, you know, if you have five loaves and two fish, you can throw a big party. The signs are pointing to something more. This sign is not a promise that Jesus is going to raise Lazarus for you. This sign is pointing to something greater. The first, what we see is that Jesus has rescued his friend from death. This is a sign that reveals Christ's power over death. But this is not the moment where Jesus conquers death. Lazarus is still going to die. This is a sign. This is a foreshadowing of the truth. The greatest sign of Christ's power to rescue and redeem suffering sinners is a different empty tomb. Christ conquered death by confronting death directly. He went through death. He did not fight the shadow of death. His enemy was not physical death. Jesus fought against his true enemy. Jesus took on the sins of humanity. He took on the punishment of the fall, and he died. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. I am the resurrection and the life. I have authority to lay down my life and to take it back up Again, Lazarus' empty tomb is but a shadow of the greater empty tomb. Lazarus' empty tomb did not conquer death, but Christ's empty tomb conquered death. He cried on the cross, it is finished. The result of this is our comfort. Why are we comforted? Again, I'm not promising that your Lazarus is going to be raised. Why are we comforted? Because he's given us that resurrection. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And yet Christ called me out of the kingdom of darkness and into his marvelous light. I was bound by my sin. And yet Christ freed me. He unbound me from them. The final purpose clause that we saw is that so that you may believe. This is your only hope. You must believe. For us uh, who have already placed our faith in Jesus Christ, understand that God is using human suffering not as a way to doubt his love and sovereignty. He uses human suffering to point to the true reality. He's present he loves us. He is with us. All three things, all three purpose statements that he gave are there. And those are purpose statements that are for us. Your suffering is for the glory of God. Your suffering happens in his love for you. Your suffering is so that your belief may be strengthened. 
Maybe you're here this morning like Martha and you're just grasping for hope. Look to Jesus. Let him show you who he truly is. He is the sovereign God who has a perfect plan of salvation. Grasp the hope that is found in Jesus alone. Maybe you're here like Mary and you're just overwhelmed emotionally. Look to Jesus. See his heart. He loves you. He understands your pain better than you even understand it yourself. For he has experienced greater pain and greater suffering than anyone. In his love, he offers a different way. Run to him, fall at his feet, and let him show you his love. Or maybe you aren't in either of those positions, but you just see and are weighted down by humanity's grief of death. Look to Jesus. He is the only one who rescues and redeems. He is the only one who can make and who can transform suffering and use it for our good. Believe it in him. Believe in Christ's sovereign plan of salvation, for it is our comfort in suffering. It is through our knowledge in salvation that we are comforted. It is God's sovereign plan.